And so this, this idea that we are part of a greater weave is really nourishing to me. I find it to be a, a beautiful metaphor. And if actually you look back at a lot of the matriarchal cultures and a lot of women's spirituality and women's religion in various cultures, you see again and again this motif of weaving and weaving magic and clothes and textile. Just look at the name, The Great Unraveling from Joanna Macy's work in The Three Stories. Unraveling, what does it make you think of? Typically, it makes you think of thread of clothes of something coming apart that's been stitched together and if something's been stitched together if it's been woven it can be unwoven and if it can be unwoven it can be rewoven into a new pattern that's ariella daly beekeeper and dream worker back with me for a second conversation this time to kick off turning season podcast i'm thrilled to be bringing you this new expanded podcast including conversations with all kinds of healers, change makers, visionaries, inventors, and people doing the on-the-ground work of the great turning. People following their own thread and rising to their role in shifting humanity to a life-sustaining society, in how we relate to each other, to ourselves, and to the rest of life on Earth. Ariella is here with me for episode one, First of all, because of her wisdom about bees and her immersion in her passion for beekeeping and for the great turning and knowing humans as a part of nature. And also because she's a dream worker. And so many of you who've been listening to the Dreamer's Den podcast up till now loved hearing from her a few episodes back talking about bee shamanism, the dream weave, and the dream of the earth, and how she facilitates dream work. So we touch on dreams a little bit in this conversation, but I'll link in the show notes to the Dreamer's Den series, episode 31, if you want to hear more about Ariella's relationship with dreams. In this conversation, you'll hear us talk about the three stories of our time, one being business as usual, the second, the great unraveling, and the third, the great turning, and how these three stories are playing out for bees and for beekeepers. Ariella talks about conventional beekeeping as a business-as-usual kind of approach, with the perspective mainly being that the goal is to control the bees and make sure they serve human interests as productively as possible, and the great unraveling showing up as you probably know, in bees dying in mass numbers in recent years. And then the great turning as people shift toward natural beekeeping and even to a kind of bee stewarding that is more about being with and supporting bees than it is about getting anything from them. Ariella talks about the alarm bell that bees have rung recently with their deaths, their colony collapse, and how humans have become more aware of how much we rely on bees for pollinating our food supply. So you'll hear me ask Ariella to share what we should know. If we're not beekeepers, not looking to become beekeepers, what should we know about bees and how can we help? We talk about almond trees, city rooftops, about what it feels like to bring a child into the world at this time while feeling such great love for life on earth and also going through times of apathy and despair. You'll hear the voice of Ariella's six-month-old baby too, 
and hear her get distracted by the beauty of leaves outside the window, both of which I love because we're here having a purposeful, heartfelt conversation and motherhood and trees in the wind are present too, all the time. I love this conversation and I hope you will too. May you learn something, feel something, and glimpse more ways than you'd seen before in which the great turning is happening now. You're listening to Turning Season Podcast. I'm your host, Leilani Navar, here with your dedicated dose of active hope. I'm delighted to bring you these conversations with the inspired individuals who are collectively shifting us to a life-sustaining society. You'll hear from all kinds of healers and change makers playing their unique part in the great turning. From healing personal trauma to visionary thinking, decolonization to building composting toilets, new innovations to bridging social divides, there are thousands of reasons and ways to participate. Keep listening to find out more of what's being done already and what's possible. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and come to turningseason.com to connect. My guest today is Ariella Daly. Ariella is a natural beekeeper living in Northern California. She fell in love with bees in 2010 when a swarm of wild bees moved into the wall behind her bed. She teaches and speaks about natural beekeeping, the honeybee organism, and the human relationship to bees. She believes that through learning to listen to the bees with all our pathways of knowing, we are learning to heal our own disconnect from the natural world. Her work with bees is also informed by a decade studying European bee shamanism with the Lyceum in England. This tradition holds the honeybee as its central motif and ally. She is trained in dream work, oracular seership, the pollen method for healing, and nectary work. Ariella sources from both the bee tradition and living with bees to facilitate retreats, workshops, and personal sessions to support healing, intuition, womb wisdom, and our inherent connection to the vitalic life force energy of the earth. Welcome, Ariella. Thank you so much for coming back now on Turning Season Podcast. Hi, it's great to be back, Leilani. It's good to be a part of this new project. I'm so excited to hear you talk about this side of what's on your mind and heart and how dreams and also beekeeping are connected, are part of your role in the great turning. On these early episodes, I want to really talk about the three stories of our time so we can reflect on how we're all relating to them. And I think at this moment on earth, one of the stories, the great unraveling is becoming so much more glaringly obvious that uh, the way we're relating to these stories is changing, but just to name them and then hear where you're at. There's the, the story of business as usual, which is basically how we've been going in, in the industrial growth society of getting ahead, making more, extracting more, producing more, uh, trying to grow, grow, grow. And the destruction is either not noticed or not concerning. Then there's the story of the great unraveling, which is 
invoking a lot of despair, I think, right now, where we see ecosystem destruction, social crises, refugees, mass extinctions. And the third story happening at the same time is the great turning that right now humanity is in a great worldwide, humanity-wide turning and course correction to where we can live in a life-sustaining way with each other and with the rest of the living earth. So I know that in some ways I live in all three of those stories and find them, you know, to sort of be my reality at different moments. How, how do you relate to those three stories? I would say I've been thinking about the latter, the great turning since I was a teenager, um, which is interesting because I think about what teenagers must be going through now, now that we're actually in full on reality of climate change. Um, you know, it was just, I was looking at, looking at it then and looking at the great unraveling and also feeling the sense of, yeah, but something else is coming with that. And that has never left me. Um, I got into bees and beekeeping through sort of two, two avenues at the same time. One was the more spiritual avenue connecting to dream work and bee shamanism. And one was the more um, you know, practical beekeeping. And the practical beekeeping avenue is just, <laughs> it's rife with the you know business as usual story and narrative um, that's needing and is being deconstructed so like, quite literally my work is deconstructing that narrative in terms of beekeeping what does that mean what does it look like now um, why do we keep bees the way we keep bees etc cetera, etc cetera. and so I, I really kind of relate to this um, breaking down the white supremacy, patriarchal, you know, col colonialism, all of that that exists in every pocket of our experience. And it, good God, we can't address it all at once. No one person can. So where, where can we? And it's, you know, it's in whatever we're passionate about. And I'm passionate about bees and beekeeping and all of that. So that's where I see it and try to unravel it, our relationship to the wild. Um, the great unraveling is really hard to come to terms with right now. I, I think I've been much more op optimistic in the past and I still am. I still see the great turning as like, we actually have so many of the tools that we need to shift, um, you know, everything from the systems and the, you know, socio socioeconomic systems, the, um, a lot of the issues around uh, marginalized cultures and peoples, et cetera, et cetera, and climate. You know, a lot of the ways we have a lot of the incredible and genius um, methods to stop and change and restore, but um, we just haven't gotten there quite yet as a culture, as a society, as a global society to say, yes, that's what we want. That's the way, but it's so much has been invented. And so I, I think about that all the time. And then I also have like full on existential ecological dread and apathy that shows up because, um, because I'm trying to raise an infant 
in direct relationship to wildfire smoke and imminent threat of my home burning mm-hmm. down. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, it's all there. <laughs> yeah, it's all there. And, and at some points it's really in our faces and it's not a philosophical question anymore. Yeah. It's like, there's a fire outside and yeah. Um, would you be willing to speak a little bit more about having a baby and having those moments of apathy and dread? How do you move through those times? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a six month old at this point of recording and, um, it's always been very clear to me that I, it's not my job to stand in the way of her, her will to live. When I was wanting to become pregnant, seeking a donor, all of the different ways that I was like vocalizing this desire for a child. Many people would ask me like, how do you reconcile that with bringing a child like into the world at this time? And like, if this, this child wants to be here, she'll come through or he'll come through and, and they have every right to fall in love with this world just as much as I do. And it's my duty and my job to make sure that she falls in love with this world heartbreaking absolutely mm-hmm. heartbreaking but I, I have to make sure that that happens because I you know I always remind myself that the life wants to exist life wants to keep going given the right set of circumstances you know restoration is possible we've seen it in action we've seen what happened like just look at what happened when they reintroduced wolves to Yellowstone and how that affected the ecosystems life wants to flourish and if we can fall in love and i think this actually speaks like what i feel like i'm here to do on this planet if we can fall in love with the planet and feel like it has this living soul and that we can connect with that and that we have a relationship to it and that we are desired and wanted and dreamt up and part of it then we'll we'll want to care for it and Mm-hmm. fight for it. So yeah, I, I, I remind myself that a lot. And when it's particularly challenging and like, we can't leave the house <laughs> because the smoke is so yeah. bad for months on end. Um, you know, we just keep looking at where, where is there still life? What's still thriving? What's blooming? You know, what are the birds doing? It, it, it seems simple, but that's how I get through it. Yeah. And that's, that's it. That's life living. And I mean, a baby for me, a baby is such a beautiful, irresistible (laughs) example of that. Even if, I mean, I don't know how she feels about being stuck in the house or she she, hates it, (laughs) you know, but okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But nonetheless, I'm sure she's, you know, giggles at things and finds her delight and, you know, is there to show that life can be so delightful. Yeah, even stuck in the house. And I, I think too, that, that question of, you know, can I have a child at a time like this, you know, this is a really dire time and it's, it has a different quality of, there might be a, um, you know, a a point of no return, um, which I don't think humans thought about so much in the past. I think there were always mythological level, you know, is there an apocalypse coming, but we face it differently, but at the same time, there's never been a time that it was felt like a guarantee of safety and ease to bring a child into the world. No. 
you know, it, it, it's just, that's never going to be something we can expect for our children. And, and if we didn't have babies, would we care so much about doing this healing and restoration? I don't know. I think they, I think they give us a powerful reason and, and enliven that love. Like you're talking about to fall in love with life going on beyond my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a big part of what we're in reparations. Um, we're trying to make reparations around is, you know, when we stepped out of the village and out of the small community and out of the tribe and out of the clan, what, however you want to talk about like various ways that, um, uh, people have gathered and into the nuclear family model, which was supported by the Industrial Revolution, um, we really lost that sense of my ancestors and my descendants, the, the line, the lineage yeah. going both ways, and, and not just my descendants, but the descendants of my people, my friends, my community, my, uh, you know, the, the, the people. Um, yeah. And that that generational wisdom is still held and, and preserved in many of the different indigenous cultures of this world. I think we have to remember that and hope for that with, with them. I, I do actually want to make one statement that I'm realizing um, uh, just for anyone who's listening. Um, you know, I said, it's not my right to get in the way of her, of her wanting to come in. And I mean that because I was calling in a child. I, I think that there's, you know, of course, you know, if it was not the time when I got pregnant and I decided to terminate the pregnancy, that would have been absolutely the right choice. But I, I just was calling in a child and I didn't feel like my fear, I didn't feel like I had a right to be like, oh, I'm just afraid of the end of the world. <laughs> like like yes. maybe she has, she, like that it shall only be gifted doom and gloom. Like, I don't know. I actually don't know what's held um, through her lifetime and it's terrifying, but also there is so much hope. And so that's what I meant by, I don't want to stand in the way of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah. Thank you for naming that, especially right now. Um, I heard you that way, but I'm glad you specified that, um, that it's not about, you know, um, not being able to make a choice, but that in the desire to be a mother, you know, letting that desire for life to live mm-hmm. come through. Which means we have to believe that it's possible that a different yeah. ending is in store. Well, that's the thing about uncertainty. We can't say, oh, it, the end of the world might be coming and not say, well, if you're saying it might be, it also might not be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we have... And, and we have a role to play in, in which way that, that goes. So, um, I want to come back to what you were starting to share about business as usual and beekeeping. But before we, we go back there, cause I do want to dive in more to kind of the details of beekeeping. You started to say something about sort of you didn't use this word, but I've heard you use it before, reweaving ourselves back into our idea of nature, rewilding and the idea that we're being dreamt up and we're of this earth and we're a part of it. And I would love to hear more about that and how you see human beings as a part of all the other beings. Absolutely. That's another thing that having a child has really shown me. Um, 
you know, when she's nursing, I look at her and I, I just think, oh my God, this is just a tiny little mammal. <laughs> like, <laughs> beings, we are, uh, we are of the earth. We are the dream of the earth in the, I don't know what to call it, the cosmology or the myth cycle or the, the, the beliefs of um, the folk tradition and the shamanic tradition that I've been studying for the last uh, decade plus there's a story we could say of a great uh, weave or net that's over the earth um, kind of like a force field and it's made up of many many threads and those threads are the dreamers threads and they emanate from the bodies of dreamers of human and other life on earth and they all connect up and link up and weave and that we can dream into this weave we can dream the dream the great dream of the earth which is something that you've probably heard of if you've ever familiarized yourself with thomas berry's work the idea of the you know the great dream of the earth and um you know the, the earth isn't dreaming itself into destruction i wouldn't i wouldn't say that you know the, the dream of the earth is life and is flourishing and we we can connect to that um and so this this idea that we are part of a greater weave is really nourishing to me. I find it to be a, a beautiful metaphor. And if actually you look back at um, a lot of the matriarchal cultures and a lot of women's spirituality and women's religion in various cultures, you see again and again this motif of weaving and weaving magic and clothes and textile. Just look at the name, The Great Unraveling from Joanna Macy's work in The Three Stories. Unraveling, what does it make you think of? Typically, it makes you think of thread, of clothes, of something coming apart that's been stitched mm -hmm. together. And if something's been stitched together, if it's been woven, it can be unwoven. And if it can be unwoven, it can be rewoven into a new pattern. And that is heartbreaking work. It's a backbreaking work. It's not easy. I mean, if you do it on your in your own life where you have a tr track you're on and life comes in, the fates come in and say, absolutely not anymore. This is we're going to reroute you. That that unstitching of your life is so painful. And that's what we're going through. It's not easy because the, the pattern is all we can see. This is it. This is the only garment I wear. I don't know what else to wear. And now it's unstitched. And now, oh my God, I'm just so vulnerable to everything. And I have no idea how to dream up another pattern. That's, that's where we're kind of doing all three at the same time. So we're trying to dream yeah. up that new pattern for ourselves. And I, I think that when we, when we look at this idea that we are the dream of the earth, it's, it's really saying that we are part of the consciousness that propels life into being just as much as the raccoon and the fox and the kangaroo and the stones and the rivers, um, you know, and, and that, it, that collectively there's, there's a wholeness when we remember that we're, we're part of that and that we can steward that. Maybe our role is about mm -hmm. stewardship more than just um, you know, manifest destiny and conquer, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I, I love the idea that we have these human brains capable of imagination and memory and analysis in a way that it doesn't seem other animals do. And that, that 
part of why we have that and our role with that is to be able to um, feel connected to our ancestors, to think seven or 14 generations ahead, to notice how bees behave and how we can weave ourselves into relationship with them, that, that it's that stewardship and that perception of time, that that's part of our role within, within the whole weave. Yeah. You know, as, as opposed to, and I'd be curious what you think when, when you hear this kind of idea, like humans are fundamentally different from nature and nature quote unquote, would be better off without humans. Humans are like a cancer. Humans are like a virus, you know, on the planet. Um. So much to say there. I would highly recommend, um, gosh, I wish I could think of the resources off the top of my head, but what comes to mind is the work that some people are doing um, out there around um, our concept of wild and nature as something out there and other and Mm -hmm. that even the idea of a pristine wilderness um i am borrowing this from someone on a wonderful person on instagram and i can't remember her name um so if i find it i will yeah we'll find find it in the show notes um but she was just talking sharing and talking about how uh, you know it was a bunch of white dudes who wanted to preserve specific places in nature for like wandering and contemplation, fully disregarding the indigenous stewardship that had been there for thousands and thousands of years in terms of land tending. And it's part of why we have this whole issue with fire in the first place, because of this idea of like, let's set something pristine and nature natural and wild over there. And and it's now it's protected and now it's perfect and untouched. And We've always been touching nature. We are nature. We are wild. Um, I remember I was on a my very first backpacking trip, um, which was in my early twenties. I was with uh, Will Scott, who is now a um, faculty member and founder of the program Weaving Earth, which really addresses nature relationship, um, intersectional uh, leadership, and all that sort of stuff. Is like terrible terrible description of it but it's an amazing program we'll link to that too so he's a the, you know the whole faculty they're all dear personal friends and and um we were i was kind of like like rubbed raw by my experience of going out into n- nature for the first time and not being around you know not even like camping with a you know car camping this was deep wilderness it just opened me up, it pierced me, I wept and wept and wept. And I remember him turning to me and saying, you know, we are nature, we are the earth looking back on herself. And that just got me. And it reminds me like what you were saying about our, that, that because we have minds and we can hold these memories and we, we have this, anal- this ways to anal- ugh, analyze um, that we can be this aspect of the earth that does reflect and does look back on itself. And, and as such, we can do better. Mm-hmm. We could do so much better. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. I find it very important and very challenging to unravel and reweave my own sense of being separate from nature, even though I live in a fairly 
wild place. I mean, I do use that word. It's, it's fairly wild and there's a lot of life here. That's not human. (laughs) Um, I, I have grown up feeling like something else different than the wilderness Mm -hmm. and, and it's, yeah, definitely something I'm, I'm actively doing right now. Yeah. I think, I think the, one of the things we can do with that is, you know, how do we bridge? So, you know, not everyone has access to wild lands, we call the wild lands, or not everybody has a bobcat, you know, passing through their backyard, which yeah, be the case for me, and so delightful. I loved that. Um, <laughs> but we can still connect to, you know, that which flourishes, that which grows, even if it's just a little pot of rosemary on a you know, balcony window or um, getting involved in the community garden or, uh, you know, tending bees if you have the space. There's there's Mm -hmm. ways that that bridge. And I think humans have been doing that for a long time, that that we we find the places that are the that, you know, there's the city and then there's the edge place between, you know, what we might consider the wild or the more untamed or the more like the less civilized (laughs) all these use. Um, you know, we, we came together in tribes and communities to protect ourselves from like very real threats, like wolves <laughs> and, yeah. and, and yet we can, we can be the people who stand at the edge and can look both directions. I think that's part of the, the work of like modern day shamanism is to look both directions, look to the city, look to the modern culture, and also look to the the wild and and find the places that though where those things can be bridged where it's less black and white and becomes more nebulous and becomes more liminal and blended that's mm-hmm. I, I think that's can be really valuable in our work ahead yeah i love that idea of blending and and what you said about you know coming together to protect ourselves sort of formed this idea in my mind about how you know, there's this sense that wild creatures or even forces of nature, like a fire or a hurricane can, can destroy us, you know, the humans who've come together to take care of each other. But there's also this phenomenon right now where we are destroying everything else. The way humans are coming together to look out for one another and mm-hmm. get what they want is destroying everything else. So what is, what is the blend? How do we orient ourselves as we go forward to, you know, taking care of each other in a way that blends. So it's not fundamentally destructive, you know, that it, that it can be safe and provide for us without being. I mean, I think, so this is such a complex thing, right? Not, we can just riff on that one question for the rest of eternity. Yeah. But I think one of the things that gives me hope around that question is that, in some ways, I think we're being forced to, um, and it's, it's ho- hopefully <laughs> we will actually start to listen to the voices that have been speaking to this all along and um, to the communities that have been most directly affected. You know, like I'm affected by wildfire smoke, um, but I can go into my house and I have an air filter. Um, yeah. You know, I, I have the resources um, because of my privilege. And so, as we, we, we really, one, are needing to hear the voices that are starting to be heard 
in this great reckoning on every level that we're having at the moment. Um, I'm losing my train of thought because I got distracted by the leaves of the window because they were doing something pretty. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that was more important. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so uh, I don't know what I was going to say. Sorry about that. <laughs> something about something about as we're as we're blending in and being forced to right, you know, reckon with that. yeah that it that it does it it does force in some like some creativity and finding some answers like vertical gardens and community yeah. gardens and greening of rooftops. And these are all things that it, it it doesn't mean that we completely end life as we know it. We could. Right. cities for instance they actually could become yes. vibrant places for mm-hmm. pollinators and um you know diverse species and the reintroduction of heirloom gra- seeds and grains and all that kind of stuff is is available to us and is starting to happen already and I, I think we're being pushed towards that um and many people are hearing that and following that and at the same time of course we're 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 doing the opposite because that's what happens during a great unraveling. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's talk more about these pollinators, the bees and, you know, gardening and beekeeping, even in more urban environments, if we could get into some of your wisdom around that, like, you know, on the, on the bigger scale, like we've been talking, I know you, you see bees as being wisdom teachers of the earth. And you also know a lot about the practicality of beekeeping and how people can open up that relationship and have a hive and tend to it. So I I'm guessing that there are people listening who are interested in all of that. So um, maybe as a place to start, if this makes sense for you, you were talking about how business as usual has shown up in beekeeping and, and how you're um, shifting that your, or the whole way of keeping and relating to bees. Sure. So bees are very, very old, prehistoric, mm-hmm. and they've been around a long time. We've been living with them for a very long time. We've been keeping them for a very long time. In fact, we can look at the, um, you know, hieroglyphics in ancient Egypt and see that beekeeping was well underway um, all the way back then. So for eons, for centuries, for millennia, we've been living with bees in various ways and working with them. And along came the Industrial Revolution. And with that came mechanization. And how can we get more faster? How can we uh, ramp up production, et cetera, et cetera? Suddenly bees were no longer a womb and a hive and a presence and a like something of the deep earth, um, a mystery, enigmatic. They became worker bees. And that's probably what you know them as now. They became an industrious hive. How many times have you heard, oh, a busy little bee or an industrious little hive? They became yeah. the symbol of the factory. And <laughs> yeah, right. Interesting, huh? Yeah. So they moved from being this kind of symbol of a beautiful culture. This is where we get the word apiculture, which means the culture of the bee, to this industrial factory model. And with it came the invention of a hive style called the Langstroth hive, invented by Langstroth, which it's this is complex. It's not black and white. Um, this hive 
is what I call the filing cabinet hive, right? So it's the, there's many different styles of this where you have bees on a frame. It's uh, usually a wooden frame, um, usually has some kind of pre-built foundation. These days it's plastic inside so that the bees have something that they have to build on so that they stay in nice, neat, orderly, straight lines. And you can go through the filing cabinet and check on the bees and pull out honey when he invented this it was in a way to keep be keep people from killing off larger parts of their colonies in order to harvest honey because there were various practices one of them including uh, like using sulfur on your bees and killing off a bunch of the bees in order to get to the honey and then you know starting your colony with the, whoever's remaining so you know it's not like it was this idealistic bee, bee world right mm -hmm. he invented the Langstroth hive. But what happened is it became, it was the perfect factory hive, right? It became uh, fit mechanization of beekeeping. It fit mass beekeeping. It meant uh, higher levels of production, higher levels of honey harvesting. And from that point on, uh, mostly white male beekeepers have been on, not that all beekeepers are that, but it's just, it's definitely a, a thing, a part of the culture. It's been this, how do we control these beings? Everything from, you know, they aren't allowed to build in curves. They have to build in these shapes and sizes and boxes. They get carted from, uh, you know, every corner of the United States to the California almond groves once a year for mass pollination to get the most out of pollinating these, um, this one crop, this monocrop. Well, of course, just like all other animals, bees can't survive off of one crop so then they're fed lots of corn syrup or sugar water to keep them going which isn't what they eat they eat honey you know and on and on it goes mm. and so everything about beekeeping and this is what i teach in my classes if you pick up a regular kind of 101 beekeeping book if you go to a most beekeeping you know association meetings you are going to hear the same narrative over and over again. It's about how to control the bees, how to prevent them from reproducing, which is swarming, because then you might lose part of your bees, how to put them on the right size of hexagonal wax foundation so that they don't dare build male bees, because male bees don't actually build or contribute to the production of honey for human consumption. Um, so we want to get rid of them as much as possible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everything that we teach in beekeeping is there to serve human interest. Mm -hmm. And so what I teach is what are those things? What is, what is it that we're taught about how to be around bees? Use a lot of smoke just to get them to be subdued so you can take things from them, et cetera, et cetera. And then this place that's the in-between where we're trying to move towards various ways of rewilding, connecting to what it is to um, be with feral colonies and colonies that are living in more natural habitats. So this would be people involved with things like log hive beekeeping, tree beekeeping in places like Poland and Russia, where they actually cut out hollows within trees and install hives there or invite hives into those places. Um, a movement like there's a wonderful website called Free Living Bees that is about bees living freely in nature. So even breaking down some of the ideas of like wild versus kept bees, 
Mm-hmm. I all the time I hear, you know, students come to me and say, oh, yeah, I was at this beekeeper associating meeting, association meeting and somebody told me there's no such thing as wild bees anymore. Or you can't let bees go go into the wild because they could uh, destroy other colonies or, you know, a whole huh. bunch of crap. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they, you know, and the natural beekeeping, which is this in between place where we're still kind of using uh-huh. like maybe some alternative hive styles that are better better suited to the bees and asking the question how do the bees when they're when they're thriving in their own kind of natural or native habitat how do they live how can we apply what we learn from that towards our beekeeping methods and how we interact with the bees and also how can we look at the greater ecosystem and how that ecosystem might need to be supported in order to support the pollinators. So there's a lot of pieces in play when we look at breaking down the factory model of beekeeping and shifting towards the the question of who are the bees? How do the bees want to live? How can we learn from the bees? Yeah, those three questions. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you, this will reveal my total ignorance about beekeeping, but when you do natural beekeeping or when people are, are keeping or relating to bees that are in trees and logs, like, is this still about harvesting honey? Are other things going on in that relationship too? What's so there's a huge movement of beekeepers out there, bee people, bee stewards, bee guardians, all these other words that we can use that are interested in actually just serving the organism in the sense of how can we support bees to just be bees, to not take from them, um, to help repopulate the watersheds, the you know the forests, the region with healthy bees because again if you're listening to this you've probably heard this but bees are interesting right now and popular right now in part because they rang a very loud bell and that bell was the bell of hey we're not okay we're dying Uh, Mm -hmm. like massive colony collapse all over the place uh, for various reasons it's not a singular issue Um, succumbing to a parasitic mite it was pesticide use, climate change, et cetera, et cetera. And then also just the way we keep bees. And so there's a number of beekeepers really asking the question of how can we learn from the bees? Um, and what does it mean to support them? So if you, so what do we get from that? If we're supporting them, we get human nature connection. We get, uh, you know, connection with bees as an incredible being. And what the sound of the hive even does to our nervous system and our brain, we get pollination. So that's why a lot of people these days, like many of my students come to me, they say, I don't even want honey. I just want to pollinate my garden. Uh-huh. Pollinators back in. And if I bring the bees in and plant for them, then, then guess who else starts to show up? You know, the other pollinators, the other insects, the other, it's mm-hmm. not just the honeybees who are not native to the United States or Australia, which are both really big beekeeping places. Um, but you do, you do find them in places, the Apis mellifera in Africa and Europe. 
Uh, so that's a big thing with natural beekeeping, the kind of beekeeping I do, there is an opportunity if you should choose to harvest honey, but we're choosing to harvest honey in accordance with the hive. So instead of trying to get the most out of them, we're focused on how do we help them survive, period. Mm -hmm. And then if there is mm -hmm. surplus, we'll take some honey sometimes, but not as much. Uh, so mm -hmm. it really breaks down the commercial model. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's so, it's ecological thinking. I mean, to be in relationship with the bees and receiving the medicine, the vibration medicine of their sound and to offer them the blossoms and to receive their pollination. Yeah. You know, that's, that's such a more whole relationship. And it's, tr it's a tremendous difference. Um, you know, we think about it, well, there's bees everywhere, you know, um, that, that it probably doesn't make that big a difference, but I have watched, my mother is an avid pollinator gardener. She, she creates mm -hmm. incredible, she, you know, she's helped create a farm up the road that has all sorts of flowering fruit trees and, um, so many pollinator plants and the years that she has bees directly relate to how much food we can get. Oh, wow. In the years the bees don't survive, less food, less flowers. It's immediately mm -hmm. obvious. Yeah. I mean, and it makes so much sense that the plants know too. Yeah. <laughs> the plants are in that relationship too. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So for people listening who are well aware of this alarm bell and colony collapse and got worried about pesticides and all of that. I, you mentioned the almond um, industry. Mm. Like what should we know about protecting bees for people who aren't beekeepers necessarily or interested in having hives? Is there something we should know or could be doing to be more sure. bee supportive? Yeah. Um, so in terms of direct action, if you're able to like physically be with the earth and, uh, and garden or plant, you can always plant for pollinators. That's a big one. Uh, not everyone has land or space to do that, but that's, that's huge. Obviously not using pesticides. Um, if you already do that and want to, want to get involved in your neighborhood a little bit more, there's a really cool thing where you can start to connect up with people who are planting and not using pesticides and create what's um, called a pollinator corridor. There are some major cities that do this. Oslo is one of them. Uh, the Boston green has been converted into a pollinator corridor, meaning a strip of land that connects um, many different food sources, many different spots for the bees to travel. Um, sometimes, for instance, in urban environments, all the way out to where there's more wild land um, or un, uncultivated, you know, like less, less urban land. Mm -hmm. So that's something. Um, there are... That's very cool. Yeah, those are, those are great things to do. Um, if you feel like... <laughs> Ruffling some feathers, you can always ask your neighbors not to use pesticides. That's a fun conversation, uh -huh. but there you go. <laughs> um, I think education is a big part of it. Uh, so, you know, just educating children, educating people about where food comes from, you know, getting involved with where your food comes from is such a big thing that we can do for the bees because it helps us understand their relationship to our ability to <laughs> eat well. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's one thing I think of, um, as far as the almond situation, I think 
one of the best things we can do for ourselves is to, again, just look at everything through many different lenses so that it's not quite so black and white. I get a lot of vegans who come to me and say, you know, what do you feel about eating honey? And I, I do, I eat some honey. Um, I'm not vegan, but how do I, I, I come back with, you know, I actually have more comfortability with eating honey than eating almonds that are grown in California. Mm-hmm because of the amount of bee death and animal torture that goes on in those pollination events. And so yeah. it's, it's, but does that make almonds evil? No. <laughs> like, yeah. So there's this, how do we, you know, we're, we are all partaking of this system that is destructive because it, it's an infrastructure. It's a system there. The, the ways out of it, you can't com- be completely free of it. We have to build them and we are building them. But in the meantime, we're also partaking of them. So mm-hmm. <laughs> no matter how clean you're living or clean your lifestyle, you're still partaking of a system that is in the process of dying and mm-hmm. also rebirthing something different. Yeah. Yeah. I That's cu- coming more and more into focus for me is that we don't need to put so much energy in trying to withdraw our participation because mm-hmm. withdrawing completely is not feasible, but more energy into cultivating what's going to rise up inside it. Like the little sprouts you see out of the decaying tree trunk in the, in the forest, right? Like we don't need to um, get away from whatever life is left in that decaying thing, but cultivate the new life. And, and there's no, as, as appealing as it would be to have a pat answer, only eat plants and you will be part of the solution. There aren't any really pat answers like that. You can definitely eat plants and be part of immense harm and eat things that come from animals and be in regenerative reciprocal relationship. Um, the way I see it anyway, it's, it's more subtle. It's way more nuanced. So yeah, we have a little almond tree on our land, you know, at those almonds, I don't think they're harming anybody, <laughs> but, really? but buying, you know, almond milk from almonds grown in California might have a different backstory. It might. And it also might be like something that you need that, that you're like, maybe your diet really is supported by that. And so where else yeah. might you be um, looking at other ways to offset or work with like, all about these like balancing how do you balance how do you balance and if we could focus less on policing each other for how green Mm -hmm. or ecologically sound we are or what we do and more on like you said um just getting a classroom full of kids interested in where their food comes from is a big one Mm -hmm. pause for a second my little one really needs a bite to eat (laughs) okay (laughs) sweet so okay sweet fed baby and maybe some sweet baby sounds in our company now. Um, is there, is there anything else that you want to say about how you're participating in a turning in beekeeping, like how you're, especially in your teaching, you know, as people are coming to learn about bees, how there's a shift happening yeah you know i've really noticed i think i kind of named part of that earlier when i noticed many people 
the people who are coming to me are coming to me because they want to be in relationship with the bees and they want to be in relationship with maybe gardening or <laughs> the living earth there we go <laughs> and and so their approach is going to be really different than what can they get from the bees and you know an, another thing that i feel like is happening with with my work as it evolves is a lot less of this sort of superhero human mentality of like <laughs> i'm gonna save the bees and we all need to save the bees we hear that all the time it's a very catchy slogan save the bees save the planet yeah and what i found is that the more you kind of go in with bees and get deeper with bees the more you realize i don't really know who's saving who here and i think uh -huh. that's the um i think that's going to be true whether you're working with bees or whether you're working with plants or whether you're working with whales you know you're, you're you, we are all here to save each other and by save i mean just reconnect be in relationship yeah. with and that's to me like that relationship more than anything is what i'm trying to cultivate in myself and in people um and bees are such a wonderful bridge for that because even if you're beekeeping on a rooftop in manhattan you're somehow connecting to the natural seasonal cycles and if you're connecting to the natural seasonal cycles and what's going on and what's blooming and what's you know what, what's happening with the bees you're also inherently having to confront climate change but it's it's a little bit less of like oh my god it's all just just happening to me it's like well what can i do to help the bees get through climate change it's like having children mm -hmm. it's a very different response when there's something that you have to care for than when it's something just happening to you <laughs> yeah she agrees with that <laughs> Well, you are not part of the interview, but you could say a few things. <laughs> but when, one day she's going to have so much to say about all of this, I know. <laughs> um, yeah. Does that work for bees be, living on a rooftop in Manhattan? Sure. Yeah. Some of the best. <laughs> so cool. Beekeepers I've met. Some of the best bee, like healthiest colonies I've found um, out there are in city rooftops. There's a bunch of... Um, city rooftops or beekeep bees in paris for instance in london san francisco those are really melbourne those are all really great city urban beekeeping locations and part of why the bees do well there is that they're they're actually exposed to less pesticides generally oh yeah a lot of our rural beekeeping they're either so small natural hives or natural meaning um it's such a tricky word but meaning hives that are not um we're not using chemicals on the bees to treat for disease and pesticides and we're not using uh, plastic in the hive um so there you, okay. you might have a backyard hive or a alternative style hive or bees that aren't treated with chemicals um out in a rural environment but they're going to be typically exposed to more um pesticides from farming yeah and they're going to be exposed to more especially here in California, uh, mass honeybee operations where you're bringing in hundreds of hives, bees don't ever live <laughs> like that many bees next to each other. Bees, bees live like a good, at least a good mile apart from each other in many places in, um, in the forest, according to Tom Seeley's work. And so, so when you have that many commercial bees that are just these kind of like 
really kind of ramped up. Um, it's like bees on steroids, these really big colonies that they can overrun and rob out smaller colonies. So there's another survival issue for the small colonies. So they do yeah. really, they do well in cities. And then we get to like, we get to live with them in a different way. That is such a cool example of what we've been kind of dipping in and out of this whole conversation about that blending and the nuance and how, how things shift from inside of how we're already living. Well, it sounds like you are, your mothering is desired right now, as much as I could talk to you all day. Um, Thank you so much for everything we've talked about. I'm going to link to our former conversation where people can hear you talk more about bee shamanism and dreams and dream mirroring technique, dreaming with the earth. And I will also share your website. Is there anything you want to say before you and your sweet baby go about learning about beekeeping with you? Sure. Yeah. So I, I, right now I do a couple of classes on repeat that are online classes. Um, I do a 10 month women's virtual beekeeping apprenticeship, but for anyone who's listening, who who um, from any gender, you can take one of my kind of intro to bees classes. And the reason I wanna promote that is that my first class, Intro to Bees, isn't about beekeeping. It's actually just about who the bees are. And if we could start to learn about how to keep bees by first asking the question of who, who are the bees, how do they live? We might actually all just inherently become better beekeepers because we're not mm-hmm. trying to get something from them. So that's that's out there and it kind of happens uh, every few months. Now you can take a look. Okay, wonderful. I'll be sure to have a direct link for that for people to check out. And then for anyone else listening, whether beekeeping is your thing or not, I think just remind yourself, like, what do you love? What are you passionate about? That's That's the place where you can do the work that requires sort of deep excavation and interdisciplinary inter, um, learning and and really looking at all the places where the system is both unraveling but by unraveling showing many places and many opportunities for what it could look like to shape a new pattern yes 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 thank you for that let's all look for for the guidance that comes through what we love yeah what we're most drawn to. <laughs> All right. Somebody loves you more than anything. Yeah. And <laughs> she's ready for your attention. Well, thank you again so much. It's wonderful to talk to you. It's wonderful to talk to you. Thanks for doing this, for creating this opportunity for so many different voices to talk about such an important topic. Thank you for listening. Come to the show notes at turningseason.com slash episode one to find links to Ariella's course on beekeeping, her beautiful Instagram feed, and the other resources she mentioned. If you want to do something right now to serve this thread in The Great Turning, I've also linked to the Pollinator Partnerships Learning Center, where there are all kinds of resources, including a collection of curricula for parents and teachers grouped under the education link. So if you want to follow Ariella's encouragement to educate kids about pollinators and food, you could pick something up there to share with a kid or a parent or a teacher in your life. 
All right, I'll be back with episode two on the new moon, a conversation with Jay Wong about designing and developing regenerative smart villages, small urban areas that are moving towards sustainable ways of handling food, water, energy, and waste, and supporting healthy lifestyles and local resilience. Until then, thank you for listening and for all the ways you play your part in the great turning.